Greetings, everyone. Welcome. My name is Andy Neal, and you're listening to The Hiker Podcast. What is up, everyone? This is Andy, and you're listening to the first episode of Season 2. We're already in Season 2, I can't believe it, of the Hiker Podcast. The podcast that wants to demystify hiking, that tries to find the why of hiking, to to try to find out why people are going hiking, to talk to hikers and Find out what gets them on the trail, how the trail has changed them, and how they in turn are changing the world around them. That's right. This is the Hiker Podcast. For all the different ways to listen to the Hiker Podcast, go to hikerpodcast.com. You can also email me if you have any questions, Andy at hikerpodcast.com. I am so excited to be in season two. There's so many amazing guests. We already have eight recordings ready to go of different guests for this season. Now I've been blown away by the number of people who have just wanted to be on the show and have have come forward just big names in the outdoor community and I'm super super stoked and just by the people who wanted to partner with me and we have a huge sponsor who has decided to help out the hiker podcast and if you know me you know I love coffee I worked for Starbucks for nine years and what's funny is my last month at Starbucks was when they were rolling out their Via instant coffee. Many through hikers know Starbucks Via. It's decent instant coffee. But a few weeks ago, I won a prize pack from Tuesdays at two with uh, Luke Parasol and uh, and Jeff Gearmeyer on their Tuesdays at two Instagram show they do. And I won a, a garage grown gear prize pack where they sent me a package of CS instant coffee and I tried it and it was amazing. And I posted it on Instagram. Like, I love this. It's amazing coffee. It doesn't have a kind of a bitter, dry taste to it like other instant coffees do. Even even Starbucks Via, which is was just good. But I tried CS Coffee and it was absolutely positively amazing. I was blown away by the quality and the taste. And the, the closest thing to just a regular brewed cup of coffee I've ever tasted from instant coffee was just flabbergasted i put it on instagram and they're like hey we'd love to partner with you in the hiker podcast andy and uh i'm just announcing this week that beginning next week the new sponsor of the hiker podcast will be cs coffee um cs instant coffee if you want to know what you want to know about cs instant coffee go to csinstant.coffee and check them out they are an amazing company but wait till next week to buy anything because we'll have an affiliate link for you you can click on that link and guess what it helps out the show. They're sponsoring the show and they're providing an affiliate link. I'm just so excited. So thank you, CS Instant Coffee, for uh, being amazing, having amazing product for hikers, keeping us fueled on the trail with our caffeinated beverages. Also, if you want to help out the Hiker Podcast, great way to do it is to leave a Apple Podcast review. Leaving an Apple Podcast review is the best way to help us out in that it helps other people find out about the show, more people listen. So go ahead and leave a five-star Apple podcast review. Write some words, that's huge. Write a a comment like, I like this, I like that. Super helpful. Anyways, I am super excited about this season of the Hiker Podcast, about all the different guests we have. We have a bunch of guests already recorded, people wanting to partner with us. This podcast was started by me just wanting to get to know more about hiking. I'm a new hiker and I just wanted to get to know the hikers behind the trekking poles, find out the why behind hiking. And 
and this has just turned into something awesome. And so thank you so much. Um, I've been doing podcasts for in some capacity or another for over 10 years. And this is by far in the six short months, the most successful podcast I've ever done or worked with or anything. So thank you for being so awesome. The hiking community, the outdoor community. Thank you for being so awesome to me. I'm excited. Our first guest of season two of the hiker podcast is Dara Blackwater. She is from Farmington, New Mexico, and is a citizen of the Navajo Nation. She is a recent graduate of the University of Arizona, where she earned her law degree studying indigenous law and telecommunication law. She spent a year of law school working on tribal issues in Washington, D.C. for the Assistant Secretary of Indian Affairs and the Inspector General of the Department of the Interior. This summer, she hiked through the Colorado Trail, the 486-mile trail, to raise awareness about the digital divide in indigenous communities. We had an amazing conversation. We could have talked for probably another two or three hours about the different things we were, were bringing up. Um, and she was just amazing to work with. There was some major technical issues we were dealing with. And she was so awesome to me. Um, I would encourage you, if you do not follow her on Instagram, follow her at Blackwater Soul on Instagram or go to our website, blackwatersoul.org. Um, just so you guys know, she did record this uh, with like a legit Yeti mic inside of a coffee shop. So you might hear some some spoons and some cups in the background, but we talked for 40 minutes and there's just an amazing conversation. So here is my conversation with hiker and advocate, Dara Blackwater. Greetings there, hikers. It's Andy here. I am honored and privileged to have Dara Blackwater on this show. How are you doing today, Dara? I'm so good, Andy. Thank and you our, for having me. And our listeners don't know, we tried that intro like 10 times and we finally got it right. So I thanks for being patient with me. Times. No, it's good. <laughs> We've had technical difficulties out. out yeah, it's been a crazy morning trying to get this going, but I'm so happy to have you on the show. Why don't you just tell our listeners who you are, where you come from, a little bit of your story, and we'll just start talking. Okay, that sounds good. Yeah, it was a team building ex exercise to begin the day, so I think we're better for it. Um, my name is Dara Blackwater. Um, I'll do my introduction in Navajo. A lot of uh, my Navajo friends follow things like this as well. So here it is. Dara Blackwater, Yenishia, Besh, Bachatin, Nishle, Dodsena, Jenny, Bashishchin, Ado, Besh, Bachatin, Dashiche, Ado, Tach, Ine, Dashinale. So my name is Dara Blackwater. I am a citizen of the Navajo Nation. I'm Diné, and I grew up in Farmington, New Mexico, which is in the Four Corners area, um, right up near Colorado, Utah, Arizona. And um, I am an indigenous advocate. I just finished law school at the University of Arizona, um, and I studied mostly indigenous law and telecommunications law. Um, and I have kind of just been bumming around since then. Since May, I hiked the Colorado Trail this July, which is what led me here. Um, I grew or I went to college in Durango, Colorado, which is the terminus of the southbound Colorado Trail. And I just always wanted to do it. And so I finally pulled the trigger this year. I had the time and I had the money. And so I made it happen. And I'm so glad that I did because now I get to talk to you about it. And we are so appreciative to have you on. So a little background about 
you and your story with hiking. What got you into wanting to hike? I, I was reading some of your stuff. You know, you, you took a very long walk in China one day. You, <laughs> yeah. you, um, you, you hiked the, the CT. You've been an advocate not only for telecommunication within indigenous lands, but also on Instagram, I've seen you talk about recognizing indigenous lands that you're hiking on and inclusion on the trail. So with all that in mind, how did you first get into hiking? Um, I really grew up on the land in a lot of ways. You know, Farmington is a town. It's when I grew up, I think it was about 40,000. It's a little bit bigger now, but you know, it's so secluded that you drive 10 minutes out of town in any direction and you just find yourself in the desert. And I love that about my upbringing. You know, we would go out and look for cans when I was really young because we didn't have a lot of money. And so we would just be out on the land collecting cans, um, you know, basically hiking, um, picking up trash and then taking that trash to, to the recycling center so that we could pay for meat um, for that week or whatever. And so that was kind of just nor the norm to me when I was younger. And I, I find a lot of comfort in being in the land. Um, I find a lot of joy and just peace in being out, whether I'm alone or with people that I love. It's, uh, it's just very, very comforting to me. So what got you into hiking specifically? Well, I think that's kind of what I'm saying is I like, I mean, that essentially is hiking, right? Like even if you're going out looking for trash or cans to pick up in the desert, like out in the middle of nowhere, like I think that was my intro to hiking. I've never thought about it that way. I've never told the story this way. But now that you're asking me that specifically, I, I think that that was it. Um, it's not hiking in the traditional sense that we tend to think about it with, you know, fancy gear and there's a train going by. I hope you can't hear it. You're fine. <laughs> but, you know, it's not um, hiking in the way that I think the backpacking community would identify with it. But I guess maybe that's a piece of the conversation right now is that hiking doesn't necessarily look like what we've been sold in a pretty package. You know what I mean? Absolutely. It's the idea that we don't have to have the the pack and all this other stuff that it's just getting out. Yeah, and yeah. It's, 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 it's a walk. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. Yeah. So growing up in Farmington, what led you to obviously you're you're growing up there, you're around nature. What led you to become an advocate for indigenous lands and, and, and other things that you were doing and end up getting your law degree? Yeah. So I think a lot of the root of that actually started, you mentioned China. Um, for those of you who don't know, my first really big backpacking trek um, or hiking trek was a walk across China that I did with my friend An Liang in 2015. And we walked 2,200 kilometers from Zhongshan, which is down by Hong Kong, up to Beijing, China. Um, and we did that to raise money and advocate for people with disabilities really everywhere, but specifically um, to raise money for these organizations in China. And had one called um, The Sun China's Beside You that connected families who were affected by, um, you know, different just families who were othered really in China. That's been a big issue of just kind of othering people who have disabilities. Really, that happens everywhere. But um, we saw it especially with children in China. 
Um, and then the organization I walked for was called is called New Day Foster Home, and they work to match um, children with donors who can pay for their surgeries if they need surgeries or therapy or whatever. Um, who are who don't children who don't have parents? So um, I started walking. That was my first long distance, 2,200 kilometers. I think it's like 1,388 miles is what we did. And um, China was the first time that I really saw myself from the outside because there are so many expats in China, um, lots of Europeans, Australians, Russians, and they are taught and understand what America did to indigenous peoples much better than most Americans do because they actually are taught it in history in school. Um, they teach about the genocide and they teach about the way that you, the U.S. has historically and systematically taken resources from indigenous peoples. And so they were really, a lot of the expats in China were really curious about that and my experience of being native. And when they asked me those questions, I just had never thought of it because I grew up in a bubble in Farmington, which is one of the most racially tense places for, to be native um, in America um, in the 70s. Um, the United States Congressional uh, Civil Rights Service people, they came out because there was so much racial tension in Farmington and the mayor was so inept to handle it that they sent a team out to just kind of calm everyone down and do a report in Farmington because um, some kids, some white kids had killed Native men and didn't get, they got like probation, essentially. They were sent to a boys school, I think down by Santa Fe for like six months after like torturing and murdering these Navajo men. And so there's always been a lot of racial tension in Farmington. And I didn't understand, you know, my, I, my dad is Navajo, but my mom is of um, Dutch and German descent. And so I grew up just kind of thinking it was normal um, to be, be in a mixed home and for races to just kind of um, coexist because that's what I saw in my household. But I didn't even understand the bigger picture and the context of where I was in history and geography um, right on the border of the Navajo Nation in a family that was you know, mixed. And so I saw that from the outside when I was in China for the first time, really. And I started to go like, oh, yeah, I guess this is kind of weird. I guess it is weird that I go out to the reservation to see my Navajo family and everyone's in poverty. And my grandpa has his lungs completely messed up from, you know, being a welder in the uranium mines for 40 years and the coal mines. And how like there are class actions about that because the coal mines and the government knew that uranium was bad for people and never told anyone about it because they wanted uranium. And so um, there are so many issues that I started to finally kind of think about objectively and question and, and these threads that I started to pull because I had to step so far outside of this environment to really see it for what it is. So when... You, you, you come back to the United States. What, what's your next move after you, you've, you've done that long walk and you've kind of been immersed in another culture and, and you've discovered some things about yourself? What was your next move once getting back to the States? Yeah, so I came back because I had been accepted to start the Masters of Social Work program at UC Berkeley. Um, so while I was in China, I was applying and, you know, applying for scholarships because obviously Berkeley is so expensive. Um, but... 
I was really nervous about that because still I would have come back and gone even with some scholarships. I think I would have graduated with like 120 grand in debt. And that made me sick to think about. Um, so I had been accepted into this program and planned to go, but I ended up getting really sick. I got a kidney infection when I got back. Um, I think I probably had it while I was hiking and a lot of hikers can identify with this where if something hurts, like you try to identify whether it's pain you can deal with or not deal with. And for me, I just kind of put it in a pain I can deal with box. Um, and then it, as soon as I got done, my body was like, okay, now, you know, now you get what's coming. Um, so I was exhausted and I got really ill when I got back to the States right after my hike. So I went to the hospital with a kidney infection the week that I was supposed to start at Berkeley. So I didn't end up moving out there because I was just too sick. Um, and then when I got better, um, I got a job out on the Navajo Nation with this company called, or it's a nonprofit called Capacity Builders. It was really like AmeriCorps. Um, and I was doing nutrition education out on the res. I was doing sex ed in a little community out by Kienta. Um, I was doing like a teen program to help teach them about like healthy relationships and consent. And um, the only thing that was really rough about that. Well, and I guess this is the thing that led me to law was during that time, I started to see how the laws really affected us. And specifically, when I was teaching sex ed, um, because it was an Arizona grant, we had to teach abstinence only sex ed. And I really struggled with that because having a psychology degree in my background, I knew that abstinence only sex education just isn't as effective as actually teaching kids sex education. And so my hands were really tied because I was out there to help and not do harm. But because of the laws being the way that they were, I felt like I was doing harm and definitely not helping. And so then I realized that if I was going to go into social work, I would probably feel that my entire career of like a bigger change needs to happen. Like I need to push something bigger. And I realized that with that feeling inside me, the way to scratch that itch was to go to law school instead of social work school. So then I started applying. Well, then I was the administrator of a home care company for elders. Um, I partnered with the Southern Ute tribe in Durango and I was working for them for a year, taking care of elders. And I really loved that. But um, during that time, I applied to law school and then I got into University of Arizona. And you get to the University of Arizona, you recently graduated, and you're working on this this issue that I, I never heard of until I started reading about your background. Mm -hmm. That is the concept of spectrum sovereignty yeah. in Native nations. Um, could you talk a little bit about that? Yes. So I found a really, really cool um, chapter of a book about this the other day. Well, I guess I'll intro it first. So spectrum is electromagnetic spectrum is what we use for telecommunications in the modern era. So, you know, if you're on Wi-Fi right now, you're using spectrum. If you're using dialing out your phone, you're using um, wireless, any wireless connection, essentially. Um, we don't make spectrum, we use it. So they are the the waves that are naturally occurring in the atmosphere, it's like radio waves, essentially. But we're not sending waves out. We're just sending information out on the waves that have existed here forever. Um, it's just kind of the way that Earth is. It's, one, it's a natural resource of Earth. And we are able to, we've figured out how to innovate and send information over it. So um, 
with that idea in mind that it's a natural resource, that it's been here forever, you know, that's just like any other natural resource. That's just like water, just like land, air, sunlight. I mean, it is, it is sunlight um, or sunlight is it. And um, with that in mind, like that's in a treaty, you know, our natural resources and our land are in these contracts that tribes essentially signed with the U.S. government, these peace treaties saying, we're not going to fight anymore. Um, we're going, we'll take our reservation land, we'll cede these other lands to you. And so that was our promise, the indigenous tribes promise. Um, and then the government's promise was they were different in different treaties, but essentially that you could live on that reservation undisturbed, um, that the reservation was for use and occupation of, you know, the Navajo people, the Shoshone people, the, you know, Metlakatla people, whomever, um, that they can live on that land undisturbed forever, as long as the rivers run and the, the grass grows. Um, and then there's certain other promises. There's health promises of health care, promises of provisions, promises of um, uh, education. And so the idea here is that we're holding up our end of the treaty by ceding the land. You know, the settlers came through and they took so, so much of the land, sometimes legal, sometimes illegally. And we're holding up that side of it. And yet the government still continues to take resources that we bargained for in the treaties like spectrum. So how that relates to our world right now is that the tribes who have reservations, you know, they're not connected because they can't access spectrum. Some, some of it's capital and some of it's political, but a lot of the problem is that they don't have the spectrum. And that's because the United States government sells it. Um, no matter where it is, whether it's on tribal land or not, the U.S. government sells Spectrum in, in auctions. They sell it to companies like AT&T, Sprint, T-Mobile. And the government takes in billions and billions and billions of dollars off of these Spectrum auctions. So that, that resource that's so valuable that has the opportunity and the ability to connect people and bring the Internet and bring the world to them, um, it's being sold off. And so if tribes can't access that, they can't access this window to the world that the internet is, which is obviously a huge problem in the COVID era, um, all eras, but especially the COVID era. And spectrum, the idea of spectrum sovereignty is to assert sovereignty over that spectrum and to, um, to you know, to use it, to not let the government sell it, um, but to say this is in the treaty rights because it is a natural resource and we are on this land for use and occupation forever. And that includes spectrum. We have to have spectrum in order to occupy these lands and thrive. Which then, of course, if you guys, if, if, if native tribes cannot access the spectrum, there, there then leads a huge digital divide, especially in this era of not only COVID, but just where everything is so dependent on digital, if if tribes cannot access what's rightfully theirs, they they are put at a disadvantage. Um, if I'm if I'm if I'm hearing you right, absolutely. Which, yep. Which led you to um, going on the Colorado Trail to raise awareness, of, more awareness about this issue. Yeah. Um, talk a little bit about that experience of you know taking the taking this issue. I mean, a lot of people they hike, you know, because they're for self discovery, which is fine, or to better themselves or exercise. But um, 
you hike the Colorado Trail, which has been big this last summer. Um, you know, a lot of people hike that trail because of yeah. COVID to raise awareness about the, the digital divide and other indigenous issues. Talk a little bit about what that decision making process to get on the CT and then um, that that experience. Um, the experience was really empowering from the very beginning because normally the month of July, after you graduate from law school, you are busting your ass in order to prepare for the bar exam. And so it was a huge move and decision for me to say, I'm exhausted. I haven't spent quality time with my family in what seems like years. Um, I am soul tired and feel so beaten down by the system and institutions that I'm saying no, you know, I'm not going to continue busting my ass all summer after I just, you know, summited this mountain. I'm not summiting anymore. I'm going to rest. And so rest to me looks like being outside. Rest to me looks like being on the land, drinking spring water, um, you know, just breathing. And I could not think of a better place to rest than the Colorado Trail um, in these mountains that have felt like home to me forever. And so um, it was really empowering from the beginning to get on the trail. But I knew that if I, I, I saw an opportunity in it to really raise awareness because I mean, honestly, on a, maybe this sounds a little bit superficial, but on like the hashtag level alone, like people follow people who are hiking the Colorado trail, you know, people who are thinking about doing a through hike, people who have done through hikes, people who want to connect with others who are doing cool things, like to be able to be out there and kind of be in, in this, be accepted into the through hiking community, which I feel I very much have been. Um, it opens up a whole new world of possibilities. And I, I just, I was hungry for that. And I was excited about that. And I knew that I could use that to, um, you know, amplify this message. And that's exactly what has happened. And I've loved every step of the way. So once you get off the trail, um, what was your experience like with the through hiking community and on the trail as well? Um, not only just as a hiker, but as an indigenous woman who's raising awareness about these very, very important issues. Hmm. Um, you know, it's been really supportive. I mean, I've, I've connected, I think most of the connecting with people has actually been since I stepped off the trail, just because the connectivity issues on trail are, um, you know, they're, you're not between being exhausted when you're in town and not wanting to, you know, connect a lot with people. Um, and then not having connection when you're out in the field, like you don't, other than the conversations on trail, you're, it, I wasn't really connecting with a lot of people. Then most of the connection has taken place after the fact. And those have been great, you know, cool collaborations, um, just, having new people in my circle who have interesting things to say and interesting perspectives that I've never thought about before. Um, it's that part has been really, really awesome. And I mean, I would say the hiking was worth it for all of, all of that, but even the hiking I loved, you know, there's all these different little silos and aspects of the journey that continue way beyond, beyond the time that you reach the trail, the last trailhead. So, I've seen you post quite a bit about recognizing the land that we are hiking on that, mm. um, especially, you know, my own background, you know, wasp all the way. I might, you know, literally I, I 
I go on ancestry. I had I had relatives who were on the Mayflower. So it's like recognizing that my ancestry had a large part in disenfranchising an entire continent of people, mm-hmm. but recognizing also the lands we're hiking on belong to someone else. Talk a little bit about the importance of recognizing that and for, you know, trail societies and, and, and trails to recognize the lands that these trails are running through. Yeah. Yeah. Well, first I'd like to talk about why people don't recognize it. And I think it has a lot to do with what you just said. Um, I think, I think there's a lot of fear around even having the conversation of recognition because that maybe means different things to different people. And maybe there's some false beliefs around that, that if you recognize it, it means that you don't belong there. That if you recognize it, it means you're not allowed to be there. Or if you recognize it, it means, you know, you're hated for being there. And none of those things are true. Um, Recognizing it is important for the people who are loving the land now. Um, You know, you're, you're still allowed to love land that was stolen from us, you know, like we're not, uh, I think I I don't, I don't speak for all indigenous people. And I want to make that very clear, um, that there probably are people who think and feel very differently from me on this. Um, but for me, um, I want people to love that land. I, I want white people whose ancestors came from the Mayflower to love that land. Um, I'm reading a book called Braiding Sweetgrass right now by this brilliant woman. Um, she's a botanist and uh, she's c- citizen Potawatomi. Her name is Robin Wall Kimmerer. And um, she says something so beautiful in one of the f- beginning chapters of her books that to be indigenous from a place means that you care about that place and you want to make it a better place for your children. And, and I'm not saying, I mean, indigenous identity is like such a complicated thing. I'm not saying that if, if you fit those criteria, then you get your citizenship card to a a tribe. But I am saying that, um, if more people love that land and care about that land as much as, its original inhabitants, then I think we will have, we will find a lot of common ground to have these conversations in. And so moving forward to that conversation, to get to your question, um, it's important to do that because the land is the most important thing that we have. You know, if we don't have that, then we don't have anything. We don't have food. We don't have any thing to shelter us. You know, we're like, we are nothing without it. And so, um, it's important to just, you know, acknowledge and appreciate and be grateful for everything that the land gives us because it literally gives us everything. And so that's really, I think as much as I can simplify it. So being on the trail, um, hiking culture has traditionally been, and this is changing, very white, straight, male, for the last, you know, however many years that is slowly changing, but what needs to happen in the hiking community? And that includes, includes gear companies, trail societies, all that to be open and welcoming and, and include, you know, black indigenous people of color in not only the community, but on the trail with gear, with access. 
That is such a huge question. Um, and if anyone wants to hire me and pay me $120,000 a year at a gear company, I will answer all of these questions for you. Um, it starts somewhere different for everyone, I think. Um, there are so many things that need to be changed that it really can't be summed up so simply. And I think wherever people are working in the outdoor industry is where it needs to start for that person, if that makes sense. Um, people, you know, levels of the levels of inclusion have to be so vast and so pervasive. Like we, we want to have voice everywhere, whether it's like the way that, you know, stoves are made or whether it's the way that things are marketed or, um, you know, the way that, uh, backpacks fit different body types, like all of these things matter. And, um, I, it makes me think about in telecommunications, we, we talk about the way that, uh, the equipment is made, the telecom equipment, because a lot of it is made for urban areas. And so it doesn't necessarily in the beginning, especially it didn't necessarily go super far. And, um, it wasn't made for these more rural areas like reservations where you're having to shoot a signal really far, maybe through Pueblo walls, maybe through, um, different types of trees than they started with on the East coast. Um, and we talk about like one of the first, I think it was Polaroid where they only tested this camera on white people. And then when the, it hit the market, um, it made it like blacked out any skin color darker than a certain color. And they just hadn't tested it for darker skinned people. And it didn't, it completely failed, you know, it didn't work and nobody caught it because they were only testing it on white people. And so, you know, I think about that at every level of the industry of like, who are you making this for? Who is making it? Um, what is the purpose of making it? And how are you making it? You know, those are the questions that need to start being asked on so many different levels that I don't even know where to start. And there's no one answer to it. This is, it's obviously a, it's a systemic problem. Mm -hmm. um, so what is one thing that an individual could do um, to help with that? Like, just like, if there was one thing, like if, if everyone could just start here, not that it would solve the problem, not that it would, but as, as an individual hiker, what's something that a hiker can do, whether it's to a trail society, whether it's in the way they hike, the way they carry themselves, whether it's sure. the gear they buy, what's one thing that you'd be like, do this and that's a start? Yeah, um, I going back to land acknowledgement, um, I really love it when people know whose lands they're on, whose ancestral homelands they're on. And, um, so I'm trying to find a number. There's a phone number that you can text and it will tell you, um, whose ancestral homelands you're on, um, or whose homelands you're on. And, and I want to explain that distinction really quickly because, ancestral homelands means, you know, before contact, before European contact, where that certain tribe was living. So like for the Choctaw, their ancestral homelands are in Mississippi or like Muscogee Creek, they're in like Alabama, Mississippi. Whereas their homelands now, because they were taken on the Trail of Tears and they were removed from their ancestral homelands to a place where the government, you know, decided that they didn't want that land and so the Indians could have it, um, 
that would be their homelands now where a lot of the, you know, Cherokee, Choctaw, um, Muscogee, Porch Creek people have been raised um, in Oklahoma, uh, whereas their ancestral homelands are not where they're currently living. So the, the number, I've, I've used it a few times, it's uh, 907 312 five zero eight five and you just you text that number uh, your location whether it's a zip code or a national park or just a city and state and it, it texts back to you the, the the tribes that call that land home um, so for instance here in ashland oregon it's the talcuma land cow creek umqua klamath and shasta people nice. uh, call this land home and it's it's just I, i've loved i've enjoyed it you know i'm hiking through an area and um some some municipalities, some trails, they, they post, you know, things uh, about whose land it is. Others don't. It's just it's important to know whose land you're walking through, because in North America, we're all walking through someone else's land because, you know, believe it or not, white people weren't here first. Um, we kind of stole this land. So, I, yeah, I would encourage everybody to check that out and, yeah. and understand and, where, and where you're hiking. Yeah. And don't stop there. I mean, those those tribes, um, they hold so much knowledge and understanding, you know, they've, they lived on that land, whatever you're, whatever land you're on, an indigenous tribe has lived there for thousands and thousands of years. And so, you know, they know that land so well, they know there were all sorts of practices that they did to take care of land, um, to be stewards of that land, whether it be like indigenous burn practices where they were burning in order to control fires, which people are coming back to now. I've read a lot about that with such a tough year we've had in the Cal with the California and Colorado fires, both, um, they're looking back at indigenous burn practices, um, to use as fire management, um, you know, how to, how to grow things on that land, what to look for to gather on that land. Like these are all things that they had thousands of years to figure out. And so, um, like, I, I think it's funny. I was talking to my friend prodigy the other day about how funny it is when like just the concept of like FKTs or, um, like a lot of, it happens in the climber community a lot where they're like, this was the first man to climb this thing. And I'm always like, you don't know that. Like people have been here for thousands of years. You have no idea whether you're the first person to do that thing. Um, just because it's not like, I wish they would say documented, you know, the first documented person yeah. to do this. The first um, time this has been documented, somebody did that. Um, but yeah, so just learning about, you know, what they think of the land and how they used the land and what it meant to them. Um, I think there's so much beauty and so much knowledge to be found there. And so a lot of that is online, you know, it doesn't take more than a Google search. And it's so, it seems novel, but it's, it's not because I here in Oregon, in Southern Oregon, specifically, we had the devastating, you know, Alameda fire, which took out two entire towns Yeah, and the state, the fire departments here are beginning to talk to the tribes. Like, how do we manage this? You know, we, we did the clear cutting thing that didn't work. We just suppressed all fire that didn't work. Mm -hmm. And the conversation here is like, wow, we're actually going to talk to people who have been stewards of this land for thousands of years to find out what works when we've only been here for a few hundred. What yeah. a novel idea. <laughs> Seriously. And a lot of the experience, my experience of being indigenous is just kind of looking at people and going like, oh, really? You, oh, that's, you think that's a good idea? Okay, cool. Yeah, let's try that. 
Dara, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us about about your journey and, and, and these things. We could be talking forever and I, we haven't even scratched the surface. Um, but before we go, I just uh, I'm curious. How has hiking changed you? Mm. It's definitely empowered me a lot. Um, it's through through fear, honestly. Um, overcome, I wouldn't say overcoming fear because it's kind of always there. Um, it's not as a woman and as an indigenous woman going into the wilderness, I always feel fear. Um, a little bit of fear of whatever thing with knife hands is out there, um, like uh, mountain lions or not so much bears, but I would say more mountain lions. Um, but really, really fear of men, honestly. Um, there is a lot of fear going into the wilderness, just knowing what I know about, you know, I'm not sure, Andy, how familiar you are with the missing and murdered indigenous women, girls in two-spirit um, pandemic, but it's like, it's really scary to, I've been warned many times in my life, don't become a missing and murdered indigenous woman. And it's like, I don't really have a say in the matter, you know, but when people say that, they just know that uh, indigenous women and two-spirit people and girls, we are targets in so many ways um, because people, it, part of it is jurisdictional issues when you're on tribal land, but um, federal land as well. I mean, I'm always tracking jurisdictions when I'm out there. Like I'm looking at the signs and I'm going, okay, I'm enter, I'm and like walking off of state land right now, this was a state park, but now I'm going into in, uh, federal land. That means I'm under federal jurisdiction. That means that, you know, as an as a quote unquote Indian, you know, Indian is a legal term in America as an Indian woman, they're going to say, uh, Oh, she disappeared. You know, maybe she was on drugs. Maybe she was a prostitute. You know, we don't have the funds to go looking for this Indian girl. And so knowing that that's what happens when someone like me goes missing, um, it means that I have to be extra careful and extra alert and on guard all the time. And so it's a little bit, ex probably a little bit more exhausting. Um, it's changed me and making me maybe a little bit bitter because I have a really good understanding of that. Um, but also making me a little bit comfortable with fear or having to learn how to be a little bit more comfortable with fear. Um, and then also just feeling that fear and not not pushing it away or not judging it, knowing it's there for a reason and knowing, unfortunately, that it's there for a really good reason because there is very real danger out there that I have to be able to protect myself from. And so, um, and I'm even thinking like, you know, beyond just having, I'm, as an indigenous woman, I am 10 times more likely to be murdered than the average American. And it walking around, whether you're, in, well, maybe especially in the woods, sometimes um but whether you're through hiking or you know just sitting in a coffee shop like I am right now that's a heavy monkey to have on your back just to be to know that statistic is is following you around is really really exhausting um and then beyond that you know I worked in the inspector general of the department of interior in Washington DC and one of the things that they looked into one of the things that we were looking into this is public knowledge now so I'm not um 
oversharing anything, but the National Park Rangers had a huge problem with sexual assaults. And they were kind of doing what the Catholics did with their popes of just kind of, or sorry, not popes, with their um, priests, um, where they're kind of just shuffling them around. You know, if they had a problem at Grand Canyon, they'll just move them over to Yellowstone or whatever. And um, so knowing like I, I know there are predators in the woods because I have read the reports of what these men who work in the industry um, do. And that's also a really heavy thing to carry. So um, it, it's changed me in making me be comfortable with the uncomfortable or at least comfortable enough to still go out on the land and do the things that I love to do Thank you so much to Dara for coming on the show for just being awesome. And I'd encourage you all to follow her at Blackwater Soul on Instagram or go to blackwatersoul.org for all the different ways to follow her, read her stuff, find out other podcasts she's been on. She's doing a lot of work, amazing work. Guys, thank you so much for listening to the first episode of season two of the Hiker Podcast. Go to hikerpodcast.com for all the different ways to listen. And uh, yeah, I would encourage you as well to make sure uh, you, you check out that phone number. If you are out hiking, find out whose lands you're on. That phone number again, and I'll post it in the description of this episode, but I'm just going to say it again. It's 907-312-5085. Put in your zip or your location, and it will tell you whose lands you're on. It's just an amazing resource, especially if you don't have cell service, but you do have like text, like you don't have like, you know, 4G or 3G, but you can get a text message out. You can get a text message back. You can find out whose land you're on. Amazing, amazing thing it is. So anyways, guys, thank you so much for listening to the first episode of season two of the Hiker Podcast. <laughs>